Hello, hello, folks. Uh, welcome to episode two of the recently rebooted box office vacancy. I am your co-host, Robert. Yo, and this is uh, your co-host, Reggie. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Uh, thank you so much. We did recently finally launch a Facebook page and a lot of our coast uh, colleagues, friends, families have already given us a like, um, already given us support for our episodes. Uh, the only funny thing is that today's Spotify, apparently their servers were shut down. So sorry if you tried to listen to it um, this day and afternoon specifically. Everybody's just listening to the uh new Beyonce collaboration, um, yeah. you know, all, all, all those album drops, you know, you know, what's funny is that I would think that like, like, I know the importance of a producer and everything with music, but you would think that the one type of industry that should just be churning out content right now would be music. And it just hasn't been there yet. Um, that's my impression. Or what do you think? Do you think that it's just like a bad timing for like, like all of the artists that I listen to, it's like, Oh shit, they dropped their albums just like a couple months ago. Ugh. Well, again, the music industry has been like, they always have been, they always been having issues with, um, with just distribution and just making money in general, because, because like, you know, thanks to Apple and Spotify, I mean, Really, the only way to generate any type of buzz is to surprise, uh, you know, is to drop an album, you know, surprise, you know, surprising your fans like Beyonce or I think Chadis Gambino did say, uh, I think he his new album, uh, I think he either he did it or he's about to drop it. But uh, Kendrick uh, Kendrick did it too with Damn, from what I recall, like yeah. um, only like three days before Damn. Uh, dropped. He was like, oh, hey, three days from now, bam, here you go. Um, and yeah. there was actually like a really compelling narrative where um, there were apparently enough clues that like there was going to be a second album that he was going to surprise drop on people. But it just turned out to be like the uh, no, here was the cool theory. Here was the fan theory for the Kendrick Lamar mm -hmm. secret album. His first album was Damn. The mm -hmm. second one was going to be called Nation. So the two albums together were going to be Damn Nation. Mm -hmm. You know, but he did ultimately come out with like, you know, the recut version where it's essentially the songs in reverse. It creates like, you know, a different kind of narrative. Yeah. Great albums, great albums. But yeah, it's just like there's not really anybody else in the pipeline that like I, I I honestly think it's just because like it's just a bad trajectory with a lot of the artists at the moment where like they either I mean, already drop something or they're too far away from being able to like drop a song, you know. Well, the problem well problem is is thanks to like thanks to the pandemic you can't do like a huge press run. So like, even when you drop the album, you don't have, you can't have concerts lined up. Like you can only, you sell your merch. Oh, and it's like, God, there's only, it's, only there's, it's a whole fucking thing. That, I mean, like there's so much you can do with just dropping your album on Spotify. I mean, like hell, like, you know, Justin Bieber, try to get his, like, <laughs> try to get a terrible song to like hit number one on the billboard charts. And he struggled with that. It, I mean, it like, just, like it the just only songs, did not work. <laughs> the only the only songs that were like top of the charts were either ones that were very popular on TikTok or or the box where it just had like a weird like weird instrumentation. 
Yeah, like that's, yeah. That's, that's I mean, like, that's why everyone was talking about it. And like, like they talk about like the eu part of the like of the song. It's like like that's like the like the squeaky noise that's like made by you know like by the artist. Like, oh, you mean like, like the oh, you mean like the actual like mixing seemed extremely off. No, 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 no. So you you never heard of the box, right? Uh, elaborate for our audience and myself, because as you know, my Achilles heel is um, sound. If you held a gun to my head and asked me the difference between tremble and bass. No, I, no, 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 no. I meant I, I meant could not song, the box. Me. Oh, the song, the box. Okay, okay. I thought I thought you were using some fucking industry lingo. No, 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 man. Okay. No, no. I, mean, I mean, the Roddy Ritz, the box. Uh, you know, like, oh, oh, okay. song that has like a sample, and then you know you hear somebody going ee ooh ee ooh throughout the whole entire <laughs> throughout the whole entire track, and like that what gravitates like, and that what captures everyone's imagination. It's like, why did he do that? Man, yeah, but That's I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think I think another song took its place. But like, yeah, it, for a while it was that, or you know, like I said, people making TikTok dances, like Drake. Drake has that two seat side, uh, two seat slide, like trying to you know, like trying well, to build like a uh, build a uh, uh, a uh, trend out of it. Well, you know what stinks is that TikTok was also down today. So that whole other element of musical culture is just was just lost today. Was just oh, lost today. Oh no! Um, Teens can't post speak, their latest dance. Um, Reg, this is the future of cinema, future of video art, and speaking of the future of cinema, oh. um, just certain updates at the moment. Um, so. Other countries are at, so just in our previous conversation, and it's actually kind of really relevant. Um, me and Reggie brought up in the previous episode, you know, one of the under considered aspects about the shutdown is that with the shutdown of film festivals and whatnot, you know, that whole market of a indie film being bought by a you know major studio or mid-major studio or a specialty house studio you know just did not exist so a couple factors have already came down the pipeline where the academy changed the ruling to where a film that's streaming is able to be qualified um the canes festival is going to actually be available on online um they're still coming out with details but it's still seems like almost more like a limited run kind of viewing like what the Steven Sondheim people have been doing with the show must go on where it's like, Hey, for 48 hours, you could be able to watch this thing. Mm. And also it seems like certain, you know, indie darlings that were already being eyeballed um, are going to streaming services. Like for example, charm city Kings, Charm City Kings was being eyeballed, um, you know, as like, you know, a potential future indie darling, like, you know, somebody like Neon was going to buy them. Somebody. um, Yeah. Charm City Kings, which won the 2020 Sundance Award, is going straight to HBO Max. Like it's going straight to HBO Max because, um, yeah, they picked it up from Sony Pictures because Sony Pictures was, you know, 
in all likelihood prepping it up with Sony Pictures Classics. And now that it's on Warner Max, it's like, hmm, it's going to be we're already seeing it. So is there any new takeaways just from like the previous recording that um, you're thinking about or, or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, nothing new at the moment. Um, like nothing, like really nothing jumping is nothing is jumping out at me where, you know, where like a lot of these films are going to these streaming services. I'm wondering how, HBO Max will do because I uh, like I do believe that it could it could be um, Disney's plus uh, major rival because you already got uh, because they already say that hey we got like you know all the Cartoon Network Adult Swim content you got Friends uh, like Friends was a big deal hey, the bigger thing though is uh, that like for like people, you know, people there uh, Friends Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Like uh, and uh, like a lot of like like a lot of uh, like you know uh, shows that like people wanted to see. The the big thing though, the big thing though is that um, the thing that AT and T has already decided to do is that if you have HBO through AT and T or Directv, mm-hmm. you're rolled over into HBO Max. No no price difference. It's automatic, like you're automatically enrolled um, into HBO Max. So like for my family, uh, which is through DirecTV, uh, yeah, we, you know, we already got that. We already got that. And, uh, you know, and, and what's what's fascinating is that HBO already has like film content that could be contenders if it went to a regular distributor. Like just this past week, I still want to see it like bad education, the new film with uh, Hugh Jackman, you know, Mm -hmm. HBO buying the rights to that one. Well now HBO and AT&T is in a position where they can be like, man, we can actually push this thing. We can push a best actors thing for Hugh Jackman. We can push Mm -hmm. a best thing for, um, Oh God, kill me. Um, Alice and Janie, correct, correct. You know, and and just like accounting for that is already something, you know, I mean, we're so early in on this thing um, that like I think them opening that up, I think if things are able to get regular in this country, which I have no fucking reliability on saying that's happening anytime soon, (laughs) especially when it comes to movie theaters. You know, like I know we were making the bet and it seems like the only film that's really being stubborn right now is Tenet. Christopher Nolan really wants that movie to come out in theaters. And I don't know if he's doing it out of ignorance or just the understanding that his film is meant to be seen in films and you know we can have that conversation but i mean you know like, i don't again, know again again <sighs> i think they're just holding uh, honestly i think they're just holding off because that release date is so late in the summer because you're looking at a release date of july 17 but i would say give it some time like i think give it till june and then they'll probably find a date for that film because they don't know what, I mean, honestly, 
HBO. I mean, honestly, Warner Brothers don't know what to do with that film because they want most likely they want to try to go for the award season. Like they want they want it to be like the summer blockbuster that gets that gets snuck into uh, snuck into the awards, similar to like Inception, Interstellar, like all and like Dunkirk, like all of like, Nolan films were Nolan films also. Nolan films also play extremely well overseas in spite of the fact that, you know, a lot of the subject matter with his films, you know, uh, like uh, that's the reason Warner Brothers has enough trust in him to be able to do the projects that he does, because if you trace it back to like, you know, the kind of projects that he does original projects since, um, you know, uh, throughout the 2010s where it's like something like Inception, right? If yeah. I had a pitch meeting with that, it's like, oh, also, I need $175 million and I want to be released in the middle of the summer. Also, I need IMAX cameras. It's like, if but, you were... If I also helps that you did The Dark Knight. Right, like, right. And, and... I mean, what? honestly, honestly, when, like, like, as soon as The Dark Knight came out, uh, like, like, by him... Like making the Dark Knight, that pretty much gave him like like carte blanche of whatever he wants to do. I and what I, I would argue go with it. I would argue like, that the it, true. It, I mean, like look at. Uh, I mean, like like the weird thing is, Warner Brothers, like when they have their guy, they will they will put their faith in them. I mean, like look at Zack Snyder. Like yeah, even no. like even with Watchmen, like even with you know with like. Oh, with the so-so um, return of Watchmen, they still let him do Man of Steel. They still let him do, you know, think about, think about how much money the Wachowskis have lost for Warner Brothers. Yeah. I think because Speedrunner, I know Speedrunner has become like a cult classic, sure. you know, but it oh, yeah, lost a fuck ton of money. Um, Cloud Atlas, fuck ton of money loss. Um, Jupiter Ascending, fuck ton of money loss but yeah. lo and behold they're still giving they're still giving um those gals you know um <laughs> the, the freaking matrix four you know or or technically i think lana is the only one that's taken it on um because yeah. yeah because the uh, two uh, yeah uh, again Lana again yeah. it's yeah. like whoever i mean like whoever's still whoever's still part of that studio still likes them because I mean, like, again, again, it feels like it feels like Warner Brothers has like a, like Warner Brothers have this stable of directors that that they're willing to take a chance on them, uh, like unlike the other studios. Because like I mean, like you know, you have like Spielberg, Scorsese, like you know, all these other directors. They're bouncing between studios, like trying to get their films made. But there's still some consistency, you know, like there is consistency. But nine out of ten, nine te- nine out of ten times, um, you know, uh, Spielberg, especially through DreamWorks now is going to work through Universal. In fact, that's what kind of shocked everybody when DreamWorks had the contract with Fox, because everybody just thought, wait, Spielberg and Universal are like so associated with each other. But now. Now they totally are associated with that. And now Scorsese, Scorsese is the interesting one because like most of his are paramount, but all of his recent um, with the Irishman, 
the whole way that Netflix ended up with Irishman is that Netflix didn't go to Scorsese and be like, hey, we'll pay you this money. No, Scorsese was developing Irishman at Paramount. But then once Paramount saw the actual cost of what he was trying to do, they got cold feet. And then Netflix swooped in and they were like, yo, we could have fucking Martin Scorsese as a Netflix exclusive. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Of course, we're going to fucking spend an arm and a leg for that. And what's funny is that the same thing is happening um, with the new film that he's working on. That's going to have both Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Robert De Niro. Let me look up. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon. The same shit is happening with that one. We're like killer of the killers of the flower moon set up at Paramount going to star both Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, you know, his two main homeboys, um, you know, with like a really relevant topic about, you know, a serial killer, you know, killing native Americans in the 1920s. I mean, God, Scarsese doing that shit and it being the birth of the FBI, like it deals with so much of his themes, but lo and behold, the budget is becoming gigantic. Paramount's getting cold feet. It's per- it's a period piece, like yeah, like knowing Scorsese, like like they they I mean like they would get Kofi like like you know like whenever you present them an idea of doing a period piece and it's like and like it's like climbing up to like you know a little more than a hundred hundred and something million dollars. I mean like well, I mean like, well, like, which like case a good it, example. It, well, like here's, like, here's ahead, a good go example. Ahead. Well, here's a good good example of it, like. When they did The Godfather Part Two, Paramount wanted Coppola to shoot in L.A. because they did not want him to like shoot in New York. It was too expensive to do, you know, too expensive to recreate, like you know, to do a period piece in New York. But like, but like in the commentary, I think either either what's in the commentary or the behind the scenes. The only reason why they shot shot in New York instead of like you know try to pretend like instead of Transfer, I mean, transforming LA, you know, downtown LA into New York is is the skyscrapers. It's like you can tell, like you're in LA versus New York. Yeah, like like that was like that was the thing. It's like you can't. There's certain things you cannot fake. Um, you know, you couldn't fake. Well, and uh, and like he, and he, and here's like, a relevant here's a relevant thing to bring up with that facet, though. Yeah. I can understand the expense of recreating. 1860s New York. I can understand the expense of recreating 1870s Paris and Hugo. I can understand creating a 1950s asylum location with Shutter Island. I can understand 1600s Japan and I can understand, you know, the CGI respect of whatnot with the Irishman and the period pieces with that. Mm-hmm. We're killers of the flower moon, though. See, the one thing that studios will still be able to give some money to, if it's a period piece, is a Western. Because Westerns are cheap. All you have to do is find a podunk, you know, refurbished ghost town in Oklahoma, in Wyoming, in New Mexico, in Arizona, here in California. Yeah. It's it's like those sets have existed already. It's like, OK, 
I have to make a film where all the sets are already built. Awesome. Or I just have to shoot in the middle of nature, which, yeah, comes with its own obstacles. But I mean, like, you know, it's nature. I don't have to build shit out there. You know, like ask away to Tarantino. He had to wait like several months for the snow to like the snow to do all the exterior shots for the hateful eight. Like, even though, uh, no, yeah, they built the entire set on a soundstage, but they did, uh, but they use, uh, but they use, I think they use a refrigerated. I mean, they built in like a huge like refrigerator like facility, so so they can actually get like the cold breath, and they had to digitally do it. Yeah, and yeah. and you can make the and you can make the argument that the way that Tarantino uh, Tarantino structured that film in the first place, it's honestly a theater play. Like yeah. any of the scenes that are relevant in the actual landscape of the region and everything, yeah, it gives it more cinematic quality, but it's still set up like a teleplay. Like you could write that movie in a way where everything takes place in that cabin, which is why I'm sure that, you know, Sony pictures, which speaking of companies that, you know, once they have a guy that they believe in, will let them do whatever they want, you know, look at Sony pictures, you know, Sony pictures has that relationship with Tarantino and, you know, with something like, hateful eight where it's like hey guys i have an idea i want to do like a really intense like thriller drama that's like a western but it's in the snow and i want to have like it only be fucking panoscope you know stereoscopic white ultra widescreen release for like two weeks and it has like a fucking intermission in the middle of it Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Can I have seventy million dollars to do that? And Sony can be like, sure. But then, of course, remember the whole thing that happened with Hateful Eight, where um, <laughs> his first draft leaked out to the internet, and I can imagine him going in a huff to back to Sony, where it's just like, I know you guys gave me seven million dollars, but I'm not doing this movie anymore. Bye, fuckers. And it's just like. <laughs> God, Octaurus, I swear to God. Um, but we're we're getting too much into this. I mean, like again, the Octaurus are like, a, like it's pretty much a dying, it feels like a dying breed. And I think it and mainly it's like it's pretty much Disney's fault. <laughs> because, because Disney because Disney shows that you can literally plug in anybody and you can still be able to make a perfectly competent film experience. You know, um, yeah, you're going to get elements from the creators themselves. And I think there is still possibilities of that coming through. Um, like, look at James Gunn, you know, like James Gunn and the yeah. first Guardians of the Galaxy. He was working off of a script of four people. But Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I consider the superior version personally, he was the only screenwriter. So they had enough confidence in James Gunn to basically make the film that he felt was most appropriate with these characters that he clearly understands, you know, better than anybody else at the studio. So there's still a possibility of that coming through. But I think what you're I think what you're alluding to is the idea of the auteur. You know, auteur yeah. theory and all that, you know, yeah. bullshit and everything isn't really applicable in the modern age. I feel like. Yeah. Or or well, what you were I mean, alluding to as well. 
Well, I mean, again, it's like all of that. Well, I mean, pretty much that all died in the eighties. Uh, except for like, I'd say the like I'd say like, I mean like again it, it, like like everyone was either strong on coke and they tried to do a musical. It's like if you look at the filmographies, like the <laughs> the lowest point was when they tried to do a musical. Like everyone tried to do one. <laughs> like Scorsese <laughs> never did. Scorsese is New York, New York with uh, Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. Oh, Reggie, he did that shit before Raging Bull. Give him a fuck. That's what I'm saying. He was coked out of his <laughs> he was coked out of his mind at the like at the time. Yeah, and then afterwards he created yeah, arguably the great fact, Raging Bull. It's like it was it was it was it was like De Niro had to like had to help him sober up just to, you know, like well, it was to, his like, it was his enough Reg- to, like, to get through Raging Bull. Yeah, and then Raging Bull, I would argue, is like, you know, it's that interesting thing about like how you rank films and everything. Like, obviously, my favorite film of all time is Amadeus. But if I had to argue what the greatest film of all time is, I'm going to throw Raging Bull near the top. So whatever cocaine he was on when he decided to do a musical, you know, it helped him out is all I'm saying. I'm, I'm telling you, like, I mean, uh, it's uh, did, did a musical. Altman did a musical. <laughs> did who? Del Palma. <laughs> Del Palma, well, De Palma did, did, did it in the 70s. And the, I mean, like, De Palma, like, De Palma, like, De Palma is, is, De Palma is different. Like, he will ape everybody. Yeah, yeah. Anywho, yeah. so, but uh, leading back to utter theory and leaning back to Marvel films and leaning back to the film that we're actually mainly supposed to be talking about this episode um, is uh, yeah. So um, we're following up from what we were talking about in the previous episode about like what kind of subjects that we can focus on, because as you may not notice, there's not really a box office going on right now. So we're relegated to our streaming services, which may end up producing the next best picture in 2021. We have no fucking idea. We're in wild territory, folks. But um, focusing specifically on Netflix, you know, there's the conversation about like, oh, which films are just going to go home premiere? You know, which film, which type of film is better acclimated to be watched in the theater compared to the home market? And what we're going to be diving into is Netflix has just been building this body of films from like the actual like most notable action film directors of, you know, the past decade or two. You know, we just have these films that were made by these guys that are just on the service, you know, and not only that, they're their most watched original films, you know, Six Underground, which was directed by Michael Bay. Yes, a Michael Bay direct to Netflix film had 83 million views in its first four weeks. And then you ended up with Spencer Confidential with Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg making their like fucking sixth film together. You know, six films they've made together at this point. And now we end up with Extraction. Now, what's interesting with Extraction, um, Netflix was like immediately on top of it where it's like, hey, 
those 83 million views in the first four weeks, we have 90 million views in just the week that it's been out. You know, it's it's produced by the Russo brothers. It stars Chris Hemsworth. It's a action film for the start of the summer season that we did not get because everything's been delayed. And me and Reggie decided to watch it. And uh, we're going to lay it on you guys. And we have a certain relevant surprise. Um just real world context surprise that's coming down the pipeline. So, um, yeah, Reggie, what do you think of the phenomenon of these action films being on Netflix in the first place? And what did you feel about the film? Uh, well, I could start with uh, Extraction because I was the only one that I've seen at the time of this recording. And uh, I thought it was good. Like I thought, um, like Extraction, Extraction was one of those movies that uh, you know, if you watch like a, like Man on Fire or like you know any action movies from the '90s, you know it's you know it's Ooh. like it's like it's well paced, you know, got a lot of action, you know, very simple and like very simple, like you know, very simple, easy to follow plot, and you know, you're just there, you're just there for the ride. And I feel that it was like I feel like it was one of those movies that missed it was a missed opportunity because of John Wick. Because like John Wick, uh, like like I feel like this movie could easily like could easily play what you know like could like fill in like a dead spot you know either took a John Wick uh, spot in May or like somewhere you know like somewhere in the summer where. You know, if hey, you're not you you don't want to watch any superhero movies. You just want to see like you know you want to see like an R-rated film that's like that's not afraid With to like you fuck know ton of like punch work chase scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I I, like, I love know. the fact that you brought up Man on Fire because now that I'm thinking about it, man, Tony. Scott would have had so much fucking fun with this movie. Like, like if he was still alive, this movie would have been like, it's like, hey, Tony, we're going to give you fucking Thor to just be this like annihilating John Wick mercenary in India. Can you make a movie out of that? And I could just imagine Tony just like, you know, fucking growing a foot tall being told about doing that. And it's like, all right, I'll do it. That sounds fucking incredible. I'm giving him an Aussie accent because I'm a, because I know really Scott has an English accent and I can't yeah. recall what Tony Scott's accent is. Did Tony I mean, have an talk, accent? Uh, I think Tony did have an uh, accent, but you didn't see him interview that much because he's like, again, he's he's he's, uh, uh, you know, he was surprisingly uh, really, really younger brother. Like he's he's really younger brother. And it's like a lot of these movies is like just really flashy while like everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, really, it's like, you know, like the auteur, like the, you know, like <laughs> it was like, you know, making all these heady films and like Tony Scott was just doing Top Gun, you know? Yeah. Oh, like, man. I mean, again, I, I mean, I, I mean, like, but I mean, like people are like kind of dismissive on Tony Scott, but I mean, I mean, like, if you look at Michael Bay films, he pretty much was a fan of Tony Scott's work. And even with Six Underground, like the first like 10 minutes was like, it's like, yeah, that, that's like pretty much you're either you're, like it was like a throwback to like watching a uh, watch one of his films from the 90s. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it, cut it, and, like energetic through. Yeah. If there stuff. was if there was no Tony Scott, there's no Michael Bay, you know. 
Like, like that's just clear. That's just clearly obvious with this work. I mean, you know, just like something like fucking Days of Thunder, right? Like yeah. Days of Thunder or obviously Top Gun or even just like his later work, like Man on Fire or help me out. What was the one that he had with Kira Knightley? Like the super, super stylized. One. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, she was a mer- like, she was a mercenary in that one, too. Uh, yeah. It was not. It, it was like based on the truth. Like I think it was also based on the truth story or something. Yeah, like an actual like true story thing. And it's like everybody made fun of him with that. You know, uh, w- with the aesthetic that Domino. he had. Yeah, Domino, Domino. Yeah, everybody made fun of him with like going so super ham with like the oversaturation of like the color and everything. But then you notice that like fucking a fourth of the films that came out in the late 2000s looked fucking exactly like Domino. So it's like even in a, even in a film that he was like, you know, oh, I don't know if this is that great of a film. It still ended up being influential. And uh, it's either that or it's either that or venture because like because like the type of like the type of looks that they were going for for their own like for their own films like yeah. in the early 2000s you kind of like you can kind of see it seep through with certain films that they try to be edgy or you know try to be very stylized it, it, it was a transitional thing where it's like remember in the early 2000s you know all of these films were trying to look like the matrix or yeah. look like, you know, super, you know, desaturated blues, blacks, like, equilibrium. I think it was, you know, well, every film was trying to look like equilibrium. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, it's also like it also um, it was like it was easier to do color grading. I think that's where they. Oh, yeah, they, that, that, that they, was they, a huge factor. Well, like, I mean, like it was it was like it was like the process of color grading was a little bit like was a was a was a little more uh, like doable instead yeah. of like trying to do the chemical process speaking of like, color speaking of color grading though i will say the yellow in this movie is a bit obnoxious it is a bit obnoxious it seems like everything is stained you know and like i i mean, I mean the, like, unfortunate, it's, it's the unfortunate joke. thing I mean, is that there's it's, there's it's, already it's, the cinematic there's already the cinematic trope, right? Where whenever yeah, yeah, you yeah, film yeah. in Mexico or India yeah, yeah. or any foreign country, everything is just fucking yellow. filtered as yellow and shit. And it's like this film oh, is just like... You blame it on Steven Sonnenberg. Blame <sighs> that on him. Yeah, tra- color I mean, like traffic was like he he color graded each of those fucking like each of those sequences in different colors, like uh, like California, like the scenes with Captain Zeta Jones was all like you know normal colors. Cincinnati, the stuff in Cincinnati with Michael Douglas was blue, and then all the Mexico stuff with Benicio del Toro was yellow. I'm sure if he knew, Soderbergh seems like the kind of guy that would have been like, "Oh shit, really? Ugh, okay, but I'll just, so, I'll just so, make it." But consistent. Soderbergh doesn't like he he's like he, but he's also that like one of those filmmakers that doesn't repeat himself, or he he tries which not I to appreciate, repeat himself. Which I appreciate out of the guy for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. So just for a little bit of background for the film, um, you know, Reggie's John Wick comparison is very comparable as well, because the guy who directed this film was Sam Gargrave. Sam yeah, Gargrave. Like right? uh, he, yeah, he was a stunt uh, coordinator. Um, Hargave. Hargave. Sam yeah. Hargrave. Yeah. Yeah. And, Sam uh, Hargrave has basically been the main stunt guy um, for 
pretty much any of the films that the Rosso brothers have done with MCU. So it's like the actual like fight coordinations in something like um, Winter Soldier, especially in Silver War. Um, he also did it for Infinity War as well. Yes, he did. And Endgame, you know, so like that very distinctive MCU style of fight choreography, especially when it's with the Rosa brothers, this was his like first opportunity to actually like direct a film. So it has that element like a John Wick film where, you know, having the John Wick films directed by an actual stunt director, you have a better understanding of like how to communicate, you know, action mm-hmm. respectively. And um, obviously oh, like, like even with three, like three was so much fun watching. Like, like I've like, like I, I think I was like, I caught it by accident. I, I sort of was like, I watched the first one, like just out of curiosity, like, you know, and, uh, and I really loved it, but like three, three watching an opening night with a crowd, like, like every, like every, it feels like you're watching a musical number with all these fight scenes, because as soon as like the music fight was over, everyone just like, it was like, uh, like standing ovation to like, it felt like a standing ovation after that. Like, oh no, that, like, whole that's the first thing. That's the fascinating thing with the John Wick series is that um, and remember, folks, even though the box office is done, we're not. So um, just looking up like, you know, respectively for the numbers, um, you know, we, we talked about this in a when we were box office bootleg, um, you know, just the natural ascension that the John Wick franchise has been able to do where it's like a lot of people, John Wick did really well for itself in theaters when it came out in 2014, you know, it opened at 14.4 million um, and ended up with 43 million. So those are really good legs for like a low measure release. So a lot of people discovered it on home video, saw this like unexpected film. And then you ended up with um, John Wick chapter through uh, chapter two, which had, which had double. No, no no nickname. Arabella's three chapter three. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Then the domestic opening for the chapter two, it was twice as much at 30.4. But the domestic gross still had the same legs. It still ended up at like uh, 92.1 million, you know, and then. Fucking John Boy Chapter Three, especially following that wave line about like, you know, Keanu Reeves kind of like being like our patron saint of 2019. It opened at 56.8 million and finished out with 171 million. So you're essentially talking about a franchise at this point that has literally doubled its grosses with each increment which is pretty outstanding. And I think a major part of that is that inherent, you know, actual stunt work. It's like, oh, I can see that guy's head actually hit something. I can see, you know, this correlation with stuff. And um, and there's a lot of that with extraction. Now, I, I will give credit to the film with that. Um, my impression of the film was, you know, the stunt work's great. The camera work is amazing. Uh, shout out to our friend uh, Shelby Malone. Um, she was actually a uh, assistant on my thesis. Seen her 
fucking help out with, you know, um, this production and everything. It's like, Hey, that's awesome. That's amazing. You know? So shout out. Um, but yeah, just like there, there's a lot of like professionalism going on with this. It, it, it's still, the scripting is still kind of pretty generic, uh, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. And, and I think that the tone of it too, I think that the tone. Okay, back to John Wick. I yeah. think that John Wick, it has a seriousness to it, but the world building that it's doing, where it's like slowly unraveling this like really ridiculous, insane sociopathic society where like the entire world is just indebted to this fucking, you know, assassin society. You know, just like that, that gradual buildup and just their commitment to that, I think helps with the stunts and the action sequences, because it's like when it wants to go ridiculous, it's already set up the environment to go ridiculous. While well, something like extraction, I mean, like, something I mean, like extraction like, does that well, I mean, like, in certain times, like, like, OK, I, I thought, quick spoilers, well, I mean, well, quick spoilers. Well, OK, well, hang on, hang on. All right, all right um, you make your point. Yeah. No, I was uh, I was trying to make my point about uh, John Wick. I feel that that what like especially what worked for me with John Wick is is the absurdity that this man goes after people for his dog and like how everyone reacts to it and yeah, it's like well, he's the it's Papa like, Yaga. It's like Yaga. Everybody it's like fucking knows <laughs> that he's just this fucking specter of death. It's amazing. Yeah, that's that's what gets me all the time. Like, especially with John Lake with Sama, where uh, where he was just like he slapped the shit out of Theon Greyjoy, and he's like, it's like, do you steal this man's car? It's like, yeah, <laughs> kill his it's dog. Like, you yeah, like, do you know dog. who you fucking deal? And you kill his dog. You know who you fucking deal with? And it's like, it's just, it's just like this whole imagination that builds up before he even lets loose. Like, that's why it makes it. I think that's one like I thought the setup and the payoff worked for that film, and like and I and I think that the world building with the assassin was just the icing on the cake. Where it's like, okay, you're already you're already at this absurdist, you know, this like the super action uh, film, and then you got this world building where it's like, you know, you got the secret society that has their own set of rules and stuff. So yeah, yeah, go ahead, uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, like, and then uh, I mean, like, I'm guessing, like, what, what's your point about extraction? Like, I, like, in terms of world building, it's it's just like, it's just pretty much he's the populace, like, you know, it's like this guy that's like, you know, this run, like, he's the kingpin of the city in um in uh, Bangladesh. It, it's a Tom Clancy yeah. way of perceiving of the world. It's a very, you know. Oh, there are these like draconian, powerful, singular figures that, you know, control these countries and these states, you know, and there's these clandestine entities that exist that, you know, have to like extrapolate the sincerity of it. And they're the best and brightest and most well trained of being able to, you know, tackle these, you know, threats to be able to get these, you know, clandestine missions accomplished and shit mm-hmm. like like uh, the, the direct obvious thing that you know uh, like thinking about this film right where 
the seriousness of it because it's still trying to present itself as like you know oh this is like something that could happen in the real world even though um our fucking guy tyler rake you're talking about this fucking six foot four australian behemoth motherfucker you know who is called tyler rake which it's not really a spoiler but it's worth pointing out because the film doesn't point it out reg mm-hmm. He kills a guy with a rake. Yep, Remember? He, he kills a guy with a rake. And his name is Tyler Rake. <laughs> and it's like right there. It's like right fucking there. And it's like they give you just enough to be able to feel like, okay, is this film about to be like Commando? Or are we about to go into just like pure fucking Reagan era parody shit? Uh, and it's just like it, no, it, it doesn't it tries, latch on to that. No, it's well, I mean, it's trying to be like Man on Fire, but I think what also doesn't help is you don't. But the way how the film is structured, it's like you don't see Chris Hemsworth until like 15 minutes in the film. So you're already introduced to kid and this other guy that works for his father that forced him to like go get, you know, to rescue him or else he'll murder his family. So honestly, it's weird that you got this one guy that has a, a motive to, you know, that has an actual motive to like go extract this kid while yeah. Chris Hemworth is just like this guy that was just, you know, that's like depressed, like, you know, depressed, like drinks a lot. And then, and it's like, he's taking his mission because he's like, he has some sort of death wish or something like it. Like that's, that was, I mean, like looking at it, it was just kind of weird it's- how, like, it's just kind of weird how they balance the two characters because, because it's the like, odd, because the odd thing is that they're the 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 characterization of Tyler Rake, uh, Chris Helmsworth character, is that he's he's still doing an Aussie accent, you know, yeah. but we're still trying to frame him as like a U.S. like Navy SEAL. Chris Kyle kind of guy. I mean, his name is literally Travis Ray, Chris Kyle. They're already pretty close. You know, these like really simple, all American kind of names and, you know, mentioning like he still had to do his time with his background and all this kind of shit. And like they're they're trying to set him up. And I totally agree with you where it's like I was honestly more intrigued by this other guy where it's like not to get too much um into the movie but like yeah there's this whole other guy who is like his own fucking badass you know where it's like he's trying to like the 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 whole juxtaposition of the plot okay is that you know um the main guy for this you know major drug lord who is in jail you know, he's basically the guy that's still watching over this drug lord's child. The child ends up being kidnapped. And, you know, there's this whole thing where it's like, oh, shit, if I don't get this kid back, he's going to kill my whole fucking family. So the whole juxtaposition of what he's doing is that he reaches out to this mercenary group um, to basically extract this kid. But then the moment that they extract the kid, you know, Ovi, um, the name of the guy 
And I want to know what his background is as far as like um, other films that he's been a part of. Like, I'm not really sure what other films here, he's been a part of, but like, uh, I, I, I can I mean, like, yeah, he was pretty much a badass. Um, I, I honestly like, the fight scene, like, like, like him holding his own. But what was funny is, and I know, uh, like, I was listening to another review of this film where they were they were like poking fun at how like people keep forgetting how David Harbor uh, from Stranger Things how tall he is. It's like you don't like you know like you see him as like you know as. Uh, as Hopper, you know, it's like he's just, just you know, this oaf, you know, oaf kind of guy. But it's like him, like going, like, you know, going tell them Chris Hemsworth. It's like holy shit, he's tall. You know, like, yeah, like he's, he's built like a fucking tank. Yeah, they were sending this guy. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, oh, what was his fucking name? Hold on. Oh, you mean like that's David Harbor? No, no, the 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 guy that was. Uh, oh, 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 hang on, hang on. Uh, Sorry, folks. We're we're trying to ensure that we're not talking out of our asses right now. <laughs> uh, it's a writer in Lee room. No. Uh, no, no. Damn it! Hold on, folks. We got this. Oh, no. We got this. We love y'all. Oh no! It's the- Rud- uh, Rud- Oh god, Ruda. I mean, Rud Rudrash and. <sighs> Uh, Saju, Saju, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, Randeep Hoda, Randeep Hoda. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, he's just this like really prolific Bollywood action star, and uh, yeah, yeah. Just like, man, like his story was really compelling just like having the angle of like you know having this like badass lethal force kind of guy you know being able to basically go toe-to-toe with this you know fucking comical Aryan juggernaut and shit it's like it's yeah it's like um yeah that would have been an interesting juxtaposition and if anything I think that was the more interesting angle but I, I think the juxtaposition of what this movie is still trying to like, you know, go for is that like, oh, even though he's Australian, he is still fighting for America. Like there was a weird framing of that, and I can't really describe it any I mean, other way. I, I, I Did you get that? No, I was on the assumption that he was like he's American with a weird like it's one of those things where it's like he's American with an Australian accent. Yeah, it's like, he's it, still it, like strange. it's just one of those things. It's like the more that you think about it, the more that like the, like it's just one of those things. Like the little details you think about, like if, once you overthink those details, then, then it just breaks the movie. Mm. And so it, it's just like it's just enough that it, like there's a lot of shorthand in this movie just to get you along. But but, but it's so, but, but it's shorthands in trying to appeal to the specific people that like these kind of stories with these kind of figures where it's like, Oh, they're mercenaries, but they, they fought, they, they fought for freedom. They fought in the green berets and the Navy seals. They they were still fighting for freedom and, and, you know, protecting us. Like it still I mean, has like, that framing, which is I mean, like it still has that framing, but it's like I don't get that I don't get that sense of it because 
because throughout the whole entire movie, it's like, I think part of the problem is, is and like, either I wasn't like paying attention or, or what? It's like, okay, okay so like, let me get this straight. So you got these two, like two, like this, like two different, like entities going for this kid yet, uh, you know, yet the, uh, the guy, I uh, mean, um, Radeep's character, uh, like he's the one that's like sitting, like sitting up there, like murdering everybody and trying to kill, kill uh, you know, Chris Hensworth, you know, like trying to, you know, try to get the kid. So, like, it's like, like again, it's like the first fifteen minutes you saw his motivation, but it's like when you bring up Chris Hemsworth, it's like, okay, he lost his son, so that's why, you know, that's why he's all by himself. Like he, like lost his son, you know, when he was at at tour. But it's like, why is he taking his job? I guess he's like taking it because you know, fuck it, that you know, it's just one of those things. Like it, it's one of those things where it's it's like it's not as well motivated as Denzel Washington's character in Man on Fire. Like that's what I'm or saying. It's trying, frankly, it's trying to be like it, it's like really. I'm or like, frankly, the only- other character in the movie, like Sanju, yeah. has more you, of like the motivating thing in his angle because it's like yeah Chris Helmsworth is doing it to like repair himself and you know be able to reclaim his humanity and all that kind of stuff but it's like you have a character that is motivated to get this kid and did this whole like you know fucking espionage move on this mercenary group just so he could be in a better position to be able to get this kid to a safe location to be able to defend his family like that's that's an angle. That's a different way to do it. It would it, it would be like in and I think that is kind of following a lot in the tropes of what a lot of these like mercenary, you know, films in the American film industry really follow along. We're like, I think they're scared to just allow the actual moral ambiguity of the work that they did to be able to come through. And this is the transition that I'm going to do just so like the actual weird real world nonsense of it is that like, well, I mean, like, like the scene, like the scene, well, I mean, like if you're talking about the, well, I mean like the only difference is, Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Well, I mean, no, no, what I'm saying, the only difference, like, I feel like the only difference with it is, is like, 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 I just feel that, you know, when you talk about mercenaries, like, you know, going around shooting up bad guys, you know, like Rambo, you know, your Rambos and all these, you know, movies from the eighties and so forth, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, it, it has those overtones, but, but it's like, but more, but it's like, even, even when you look I'm at the movies that were dealing with they're more personal. I think it's like, it's like, if you focus more on the characters and like make it more personal, that's where, you know, I mean, they try, I mean, that's the one way they can step, like, kind of sidestep, like, sidestep the whole moral ambiguity of being a mercenary in general. No, no, no. I'm talking more so the recent phenomenon of, like, not the 80s, but, like, the current shit that we do. Like something like American Sniper, like something like Lone Survivor, or um, something like, um, 30 dark uh 30 dark eight 
All right, am I messing that up? I'm messing it up. No, zero dark. No, I mean no zero, zero dark, dark thirty. Exactly. That's no, that's no, what no, I mean. Zero dark thirty or, was or rubbing, like, any Clint or any Clint Eastwood kind of but, thing, where it's no, like no, we're no, so zero we're dark, still I, I don't think zero dark thirty was in the. It's in that same realm. I think it was like oh, trying to criticize. Like, like I could have Reg, Reg, Zero Dark Thirty is like literally the FBI collaborated with the screenwriter to give them like specific information to be able to create, you know, that screenplay. You know, it still feeds into the idea of this like idolization of, you know, our respective military figures where it's like when you see when you think of somebody like Navy SEAL. You think American Sniper. You think Green Beret. You're thinking of like fucking Mark Wahlberg, you know, fucking like save them, help them. And it's like zero consideration about like the circumstances that put them there in the first place. And and Um, it's still within that like very specific mode of filmmaking and genre that we're in right now. Well, here's here's the thing. Thing. If you're talking about like American soldiers, like movies that features any American, um, like any American military, uh, like any like any military force, it has to go to the Department of Defense. And if you make any crit, like if your film criticizes or bashes uh, bashes the uh, uh, the Department of Defense or any of the uh, military forces, you are not going to get the tanks. You're not going to get any uniforms. None of that stuff. I mean, like, that's what they said. Uh, that's what, uh, like, that's why, like, pretty much you don't see the military in, say, uh, the Avengers movie. They were saying that the reason why you, they can't use any tanks or any, you know, military uniform, or, like, official military uniform, because it's like, yeah, S.H.I.E.L.D., like, S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't, like, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. is not supposed to be, you know, like, like, the idea of S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't, doesn't jive with the Department of Defense. That's why they couldn't get the, uh, military equipment why yeah. as you know like so was you know like you know um like man of steel they got full cooperation with the military as a matter of fact it served as you know again like yeah. you know for promoting the movie the recruitment i mean later on in um mcu when they did miss marvel they were able to get all the official you know air force jets the air force uniform everything even though even though the irony is that Within the context of the film, the entire reason that Carol joins the secret project is because timeline wise, women were not allowed to fly aircraft until 1993. So the whole motivation for her, you know, fucking joining this experiment in the first place is because, oh, they were still extremely fucking sexist, you know? And but again, as long as the film's not being like blatant about it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like they're still criticizing it. But it's like as long as they're not bashing the Air Force, like over, you know, like about it, they still get to use the jets. Yeah. But but I think like but I think like what the specific thing that extraction is referencing towards is yeah. you know it, it, it's interesting, right? Because. If you look into the big idea about where we are as a culture and everything mm-hmm. w- with the worship of the military and stuff like that, what's interesting is that there has been this growing trend where it's like, OK, the military, hey, it does some war crimes. 
or whatever. But you know what, though? There are people that are even above that, like the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets. And it's like somehow, some way, even in the worship of the military that exists within our culture, there is still this reverence respectively with like not just normal soldiers because ultimately like normal ass soldiers are going to be like what fucking people that are recruited from a low income high school right yeah you know they're they're not considered like oh we're not thinking about those veterans because they're just like people that are just like filling the desk jobs and the fodder and everything. No, 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 no. What we're talking about is that we need to respect the real soldiers, the real elites, the people that took down Osama bin Laden, the people that do these operations. And that's what I mean. It's like the moment that like you actually trying to consider where it's like, okay, yeah. Navy SEALs took out Osama bin Laden. Okay, awesome. Um, have you considered any of the implications of all the other fucking work that they probably do? You know? And just from what I'm looking up right now, and it's not a coincidence. Okay, so Tyler Rake, you know, who they're trying to set up. Um, spoilers, there's a sequel. Sorry, guys. Yeah. They they wouldn't want you to get excited about a sequel if they didn't fucking announce the sequel within five days of the release. Okay, okay. So here's the interesting thing: Tyler Rake is a former Australian Special Air Reserve Regiment soldier. Now, here is the historic context of the Special Air Service Regiment is that basically the actual involvement that Australia had with places like Afghanistan, like remember he brought up Afghanistan, is that basically the majority of the actual military involvement that Australia had with Afghanistan, with the United States invasion and everything, was basically all the shady shit, was all the shady shit. Like transport, like transporting arms catches, like protecting opium farms, like commit, like, like all, all of the shady Blackwater kind of stuff. Basically, the United States basically passed it over to Australia where it's like, OK, Australia, you're not sending your army to Australia. Um, Afghanistan. So can you just send like all of the guys that are just like willing to do all of the clandestine coordinating with warlord shit that we did? Mm-hmm. You know? And what's so weird, what's so weird is that extraction and it's also it's also um really emphatic about the Russos to begin with, with their attitude about the military and the CIA and the government. It's like, look at something like Winter Soldier, right? Yeah. Like Winter Soldier, the implication that for the past 60 years, a faction of our government and our national security has been ran by former Nazis. (laughs) Like, like that's that's yeah. not even that's not even like, you know, exaggerating. That is literally, literally the implication within Winter Soldier, where it's like, oh, yeah. wow. The people that are in uh, that are 
um, basically controlling the international security of the planet has basically been run by Nazis for decades and nobody fucking noticed, (laughs) you know? There's that implication. And then if you look at civil war, there's the implication where it's like, you know, the overreach of government and stuff like that. And, you know, and it's like the Russos are close to getting it, but I still feel like they're still trying to play to that audience that still believes that there is this super soldier, you know, Captain America type. Which, ironically, it's like, hey, here's Captain America literally becoming like a fucking fugitive, you know, because of what he disagrees with the government, you know. But a lot of people just perceive that, like, you know what? Yeah, there's some bad apples, but there are the people that are out there protecting our own and saving lives and stuff like that. And, 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 And it feeds directly into that. You know, and and the Russos, I, I think with this film, it's a really interesting insight where you the main character that they decided to go with. The implication is that even when he was like official, when he was good, quote unquote, he was still up to some shady ass shit. Again, like again, I feel that I feel that like uh, I mean like okay so like with all the research and all that stuff I mean like the, I feel that it's more like extrapolation like of what what like what you're like trying to infer that this guy you know like like Chris Hemsworth's character is doing shady shit but yeah but but again well again like in, given the film's context and what it's trying to do. It's like it just doesn't jive with it. It's like if you're going to critique it, it's like you gotta be like Lord of War, where you actually have to confront the thing. It's like, right. yeah, it's like yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like like the movie extraction, like this, the movie had the way how the movie is set up. It's like there is no sense of ambiguity in this fucking movie. I mean, what little ambiguity that you get is is okay. You got the bad guy that's ruthless, where he. When he orders a guy to throw a kid off the roof, but like uh, you but, know, for you know, foreign person of color throwing another foreign kid off a thing, it's like, oh wow, their society is so barbaric, and it's like <laughs> we're we're playing that game, okay? <laughs> it's like it's like I mean, I I, 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 I almost appreciate I, 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 I mean, if it just. I know. Bring it up, kids. Bring it up, kid abuse. Rich, you have to give me this. Give me this. Give me this. Give me this. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is you get a glimmer. You get a glimmer of the kind of movie that it could have been, right? uh Where, okay. I think that's why. I think that's why it kind of expanded Sanju's character. Like, I think that. I think, like, I mean, like, if you want to go with like a conspiracy theory, I think that's the reason why they had. Like the other second guy be uh, like from that from that around the world, so it doesn't feel like Chris Hemsworth is walking, you know, walking oh, around. Oh, Rich. No, 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 no. I'm talking about. Kid. I'm talking about the scene where Tyler Rake just beats the shit out of several teenagers. <laughs> I'm talking about that scene where yeah. I was like, like, 
okay, so there's a point in the, he was there's a point in the head. He doesn't kill them, right? He yes. doesn't kill them because there is them. some like level of morality that he understands. But there is a scene where Chris Hemsworth and the kid that he's trying to extract are confronted by like the child soldiers that have been recruited um, by the gang that kidnapped the kid in the first place. And like Chris Hemsworth just beats the ever living shit out of these fucking 12, 13, 14 year olds. And it's it's amazing. It's fucking it's like he doesn't kill them. He knows just when to hold back. But he, yeah. he fucking like breaks a kid's arm in a fucking. Oh, no, the, yeah, the, in he the broke the kid's arm with the van with the like by slamming the door, like the car door on, on his arm. But no, my favorite, my favorite moment is when he slapped the main kid. He just like just back. <laughs> he just bitch slapped him. It's like, damn. <laughs> just just him up. Just fucking bitch slaps a child, and it's like, man, certain elements, like going back to the fucking rape thing, right? Where it's like, like, you you have a character called Tyler Rake killing somebody with Rake. You have a scene, like a really legitimately well choreographed scene, where your main character is just beating the shit out of children. Essentially, I know they're teenagers, but he's still essentially beating children, you know, injuring yeah. them, breaking their fucking arms. It's like, man, I want to see this movie. I want to see a movie where you just have a complete fucking asshole as like your main character. And but it's just be, because of that sensibility with other films with like green beret navy seal types and everything it's like it's like the people that are absolutely gonna love this movie and clearly 90 million people watching the movie i know we're in an epidemic and everything but that's still like a pretty pretty significant statistic but the specific kind of people that like this movie are the kind of people that believe in the fantasy of like this john wick Navy SEAL badass that is protecting American values, even though he's not even American. Like it's still playing absolutely into that trope, which is just like a really bizarre thing to be able to take away from the film, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here's a juxtaposition to that, you know, especially because like when when you look is when you have time to just like analyze, you know, action films, right? Because the trope, the Rambo trope is so ingrained with the action genre. And I would honestly love to do like a full series of podcasts about the Rambo series, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, However, um, there, the, the inherent idea of this guy that still went to the military, but is still meant to represent like the goodness of the military, even though the reason why he has so many character issues is because of his experience with the military. It's, it's, it's almost like this weird fetization with like like, PTSD again. Again, you got this weird fetish. Like again, he's not suffering from PTSD, 
per se. It's like you got this weird fetishization of the military, but it's like his main, his, like the main hangup is he he was on tour when his son died. He didn't say goodbye, so it was just one of those things where where he felt like you know, like he just lost it. Well, like he could see. Like, there like, you go. It's it. It's a but, sensible. It's a sensible. It's it's still like a well thought out PDS D kind of thing it, where it's like you know it's not even it's not even dealing with like any type of because it's like it's like like when he's fighting back like like when he's even when he's fighting back as like there's no moment of him of him like thinking about like you know think about the reflections of the consequences like, there's no, of his the, 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 yeah there's no there's no reflections of him of any tour like none of that stuff it's like every time when yeah. he's like you know by himself in despair he always thinks about his son so so again again it's like i don't like again like that's i mean like if you want to talk about problem you know like a problem with um like in terms of motivation it's like again it's like again um Saju's character uh, like um Saju like had had a better motivation than than uh Tyler to me, like, it's still it, 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 it demonstrates it's a very Russo kind of thing when you look at like the actual perception of the world that they have with the Marvel movies that they did, where in this movie, you know, and, you know, the whole thing is that it was just one of them, Joe writing it, yeah. uh, just Joe writing it, is that. What's interesting is that, like, the quote-unquote PTSD aspect of his character isn't something that is a trope of other Rambo-like characters, you know? Where it's like somebody like Rambo where it's like, you know, seeing like a kid, you know, self-detonate himself, you know, or seeing like, you know, holding the arm of like, you know, his blown up colleague or whatever, you know, like like the tropes of welfare. And I'm pretty sure what they thought is like, hey, you know what would be the motivation for this guy? It's not like the carnage of the world that he saw. It's not like the consequences of the war crimes that he for sure fucking was probably involved in in Afghanistan, but rather he was not there for his son. You know, it's like it's something that feels, you know, purposefully distant from the actual consequences of the character, which is just it, it, it is a different motivation for what um what motivates him through the movie, which I will give credit to that, where it's like, it's not just like trying to make fucking platoon or Rambo two times or the, for the 20th time. Like it's trying to approach well, I, like, why is I, this character, you know, dealing with the shit that he did? And I can understand that, but it is still in the effort to push, this idea that this clearly mentally fractured person, this violent, dangerous person is, you know, oh, he's still trying to do the right thing. So if we make other fucking citizens go through this shit, it's okay. It's okay. 
he might end up being a Travis Rake. So it works out in the end. Hey there, folks. Robert here uh, the morning after the recording. And uh, yes, this is the end of part one of our conversation about extraction and the super soldier genre. And in part two, we decided to split it up uh, just because that side of the recording is really getting into more of the cultural ramifications of franchises like Rambo or a film like American Sniper, where now we've created this feedback loop into how we as a nation uh, actually proceed with these military clandestine operations, yet the fact that, of course, because we're in hell world and the dumbest timeline, uh, we do go into the recent Silver Corps USA incident where, yeah, you have a bunch of these people who think that they're these Travis Ray, Chris Kyle types, but turns out that no, they're just gullible, really dumb, really incompetent con artists who <laughs> end up you just end up sometimes getting captured by Venezuelan fishermen uh, in the middle of the day because you try to kidnap a president in the middle of the day with, you know, non-encrypted Amazon Kindle. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a hoot. It's a hoot. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, we're going to be dropping the part two the day after. And, yeah, thank you for liking us on Facebook. Make sure to do that. Um, you know, subscribe to Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And you should be going right into the next episode, hopefully. So uh, once again, thank you so much and be safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>